Welcome to Heroic Hearts Podcast, where we will explore the heroic journeys of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese of Lisieux to heal, inspire, and re-enchant our own hearts. Hello, all you Heroic Hearts. This is Amy Chase here once again with Walter Emerson for another episode about the heroic life of St. Therese of Lisieux. Hello, Walter. Hello, Amy, and hello, everyone out there. Thank you for joining us. Yes. So we are here today to talk about uh, the next um, couple of chapters in Heather King's book, Shirt Up Flame, uh, A Year with St. Therese of Lisieux. And we're now up to the months of September and October, which are uh, chapters 9 and 10 in that book. And so we're going to be talking about, it gets a little heavy. It gets a little heavy this week. Um, we're we're going to be talking about uh, the concepts of being stripped down of um, offering up our our lives and our littleness to our Lord um, and just learning um, learning to identify with our Savior Jesus Christ yeah it's uh, we're gonna go deep and and start seeing a depth of Saint Therese that that may may not be apparent at times to people who first start reading her. absolutely. Well, Walter, let's start with our enchanting moments. And I always put you on the spot first, so <laughs> I'll go. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this week, and this is just a, a small one. Uh, my my doctor told me that I needed to get 10 minutes of early morning daylight um, every morning to help me, uh, I guess, help my circadian rhythm uh, adjust, readjust from, from my trip overseas. My, my sleep's been off a little bit. Um, so she recommended 10 minutes of early morning sun. And so I've been getting up every day this week and getting my coffee and a blanket and go, going to sit out on my balcony and just kind of, I'd like to say I watch the sunrise, but the reality is that there's uh, a lot of mornings are overcast here in California during the summer. So I, I yeah. do see the, uh, the, the sky lighten, but I don't get to see the glorious colors of the sunrise. But I do get to listen to the bird song, and I, that's what I do for ten minutes every morning. And it's really had an impact on my day, just because. Besides being more alert, I'm just happier. So, it sounds like a very good thing to do. <laughs> sounds like a very healthy thing to do. I highly recommend it. So, anybody out there, uh, especially if you get that slump later in the day. Try this little practice. Something about that light uh, tricks your brain. Not tricks. It's this is. I'm sure how we're designed, but it, it helps your brain to um, to be alert during the day. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I I have. Uh, let's see. It would be a different kind of morning light, I guess. But we. Uh, my enchanting moment was we finished the uh, novena to Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And the feast of Our Lady Mount Carmel is tomorrow, yes. and that's a very uh, special one because, well, we've got devotion to Saint Therese and to uh, the Carmelites. And uh, Josie and I have been, you know, very devoted to Carmelites and Carmelite spirituality. And also, uh, if I, you know, go back into the long history and back many years in Walter's story, uh, the the uh, feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Uh, was one of the significant moments of, of, of my ongoing conversion. And so there was a period where uh, I've had sort of these, these moments in my life that have sort of 
you know, kind of pushed me along um, in what I hope is the right direction. And our late and the feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, on top of all the other devotion to Saint Therese and our devotion to the Carmelites in general, uh, that Our Lady of Mount Carmel feast was very important to me. So, uh, doing the whole uh, novena over this past week and then finishing up today in anticipation of the feast was very special. Oh, very good. Yes, we should probably get a link to that novena and include it in our. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to put it up there. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful novena. And uh, we actually, uh, you know, we get it off of an app, but it's a beautiful novena. So I'll, I'll see if I can find Very it. Very good. Okay. Well, would you say our prayer of the heroic hearts? Sure. Uh, this is the prayer of the heroic hearts to get us started. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O sacred heart of Jesus, form in us missionary hearts, hearts that burn to spread your faith. Heroic hearts of the cross, wanting always and everywhere to bear witness to you, make us ready to suffer, to show our love, and like our sisters, St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese, grant us the desire to conquer for you all the hearts of the universe. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. So, the title for the chapter on September is The Long, Slow Decline of Therese's Father. And the subtitle is On Being Stripped Down. So I thought we could start out today with just a little bit of the history of, um, you know, of, of this part of, of Therese's life, because her father's health started to decline right after she entered the convent. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, maybe other people, you know, knew it in their reading of St. Therese before I did. But I remember uh, reading St. Therese and, you know, establishing a very strong devotion to her for many years before I before I even knew that uh, of the troubles. I mean, I knew that from her autobiography, the, the you know, the difficulties she has a child and everything we've been talking about. But there are certain things that aren't written or they're hinted at, but they're not written explicitly in her story that I didn't know until sort of, you know, recent times. And that was, you know, one of them being the deterioration of her father and um, who had, you know, some sort of serious mental um, uh, issue. And, and it, and it kind of, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. It added to her story. It sort of added to my affection, which I already had for her father because her father was so wonderful, but kind of added to that affection. But it, I, I think it, it, it stunned me to realize that we've been talking about St. Therese's life was no sort of floating on the clouds, you know, kind of a, a sweet thing that she had a lot of challenges. And this really drove home that she was really in the real world. I mean, how many of us have these kind of tragedies in our lives where a parent or a, re- a close relative or a sibling or somebody struggles with a serious medical or, 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 you know, mental, you know, issue and that, uh, that he, he did and he ended, he had to go to the hospital right. uh, for it. Well, it, it said that the first thing which happened was he wandered off and was missing for four days. And I can only imagine how terrifying that must've been for Therese and her family. Yeah. I'm not sure what the exact diagnosis was, yeah. but yeah, he disappeared for days and, um, was in a very, very bad state. And this happened uh, not long after she entered uh, Carmel. And I think uh, Heather King brings out very, you know, beautifully and poignantly that something I'd never thought about, which is that, you know, Therese was already sort of suffering 
from the fact that she, you know, she was entering Carmel and, and, and leaving her father. And that in a certain sense, she was concerned that, um, as we probably all would be, that my entering Carmel caused this problem. Right. You know, that, that if I hadn't entered Carmel, my father would be okay, or I drove him to this, or, you know, the tendency we have to blame ourselves and to take that on ourselves, which was more suffering for her. Wait, well, there's an opposite tendency as well, or I should say the flip side of that is, is to say, well, why did the Lord let this happen to me? Look at what I'm doing. I'm giving my life over to the Lord. Shouldn't he somehow protect my family? Shouldn't he protect me from that kind of suffering? Well, and there's, and I think this is where we start to go really deeply into Teresa's spirituality, and particularly her Catholic spirituality. And this may be something that it might be different or interesting to people to those who may be of listeners who aren't Catholic or familiar with Catholic spirituality. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we sort of sit back and say, you know, what was it actually that made St. Therese? We talk about her being a great saint, but what made her a great, a great saint? And so we've been kind of going along, Amy, and, and, and Heather's done such a great job of moving us along with how much we can relate to Therese, how much, despite her goodness, that she still struggled, that, you know, gee, she wasn't that different than me. So that's great. And and we have to make that connection and that relation so we don't see her as something separated. But now this is something a little bit different. And that is the, the idea, uh, particularly that, that has been inherent from, from the beginning throughout all the churches, you know, the, at the foundation of the church's uh, spirituality is that of redemptive suffering. And the idea that we suffer, uh, you know, with Christ, that, that it's not just that we, you know, sometimes people can look at it. There's certain spiritualities that would almost seem to say that, you know, Jesus isn't help. Jesus doesn't seem to be able to help me, but he can comfort me in my, in my, in my pain. And you go, well, I'm, you know, a lot of people go, well, why doesn't he just help you then? <laughs> and, and so I know everyone has their own. Uh, theologies and thoughts around uh, suffering. Everyone's had to deal with it. Everyone has their thoughts around suffering, but Catholic, uh, you know, theology and Catholic spirituality from, from the beginning and throughout the course of history, when you look at the saints, one of the first things you see with the saints is that they suffered, is that they, the closer they got to Christ, the more they suffered. And that is something we don't speak enough about in the modern age, because we have a tendency to go, like you just said, I'm doing all these things. I've devoted my life to Christ. Why is it that life is becoming harder? <laughs> Why am I struggling? Shouldn't life becoming better? Uh, and, you know, the, the notion of redemptive suffering has always been that we participate as heirs and co-heirs with Christ through Christ and through his resurrection. I don't want to go into theology that I'm not, you know, equipped to, to talk about, but just, I think, is a, sort of a what most you know, basic uh, Catholics sort of understand is that we, by uniting ourselves with Christ on the cross, he's the one that saves mankind. It is through his suffering that we save mankind, but it, that it, it's not just a requirement. It's actually a gift. It's actually a gift. What better gift is there than to be able to participate with Christ? So, you know, John Paul II wrote, uh, uh, I don't, I need to get the link to it, but he wrote a beautiful um, uh you know, one of his, uh, you know, papal documents on 
on this suffering. But you know, they're they're one of the one of the key verses that he talks about was St. Paul, who says in Colossians in 124, he says, Who who now rejoice in my this is the Dewey Reams version, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up those things that are wanting of the sufferings of Christ in my flesh for his body, which is his church. And he goes on to write in the papal document about what what is what does St. Paul mean by making up for what is lacking in the sufferings what could be lacking in the sufferings of christ and you know so he he talks about that and and you know the bible talks uh, you know consistently about it you know in in romans uh, paul says and and if sons heirs also heirs indeed of god and joint heirs with christ yet so if we suffer with him that we may be also glorified with him and and you know so there there are things in the bible that point to the glory and the joy and the honor of being able to suffer with Christ and that we actually participate and it's him allowing us to participate. We don't, we don't like do anything on our own, but we get to unite ourselves. Now, before I go, you know, I don't want to get into a bunch of theology because I get way over my, my head, but what it does, what it does do though, is it leads to the question that I have for people. Today. Very good. So let me, let me, let me reel back before I go. Cause then everybody go like, no, we studied theology and we got different. Okay. Everybody's got their ideas about suffering, but let's get back to Therese and the fact that she had a very Catholic interpretation of suffering. And so she, what she saw in the suffering of her father and her own suffering was a, 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 a positive in the sense that she could unite herself in that in that redemptive suffering uh, with with Christ, and so she was able to you know sort of you know grasp that. But my my question then is for uh, listeners to think about in this particular uh, chapter that we're on is what do you how do you define or what do you mean by a personal relationship with Jesus? You know we hear a lot about that. We need a personal relationship with Jesus, and yes, we do. And certainly as Catholics, you know, number one is it doesn't get much more personal than eating his flesh and drinking his blood in the, in the Eucharist. But outside of even liturgically, just in the spiritual realm, uh, how do we sort of define outside of the, the liturgical, a personal relationship with Jesus? And what, what, what I always got out of Therese was this, this, this bedrock notion of Catholic spirituality, of, of uniting our suffering with Christ. Think, think about this. If, if you want to have a deep, personal, intimate relationship with somebody, are you only there for the good things? Do you bail out or do you join them in their suffering? Do you, if somebody's really close to you, do you join them in their sorrows as well as their joys? Well, how can you understand their experience if, if you haven't kind of walked in those shoes a little bit yourself? Maybe not exactly, yeah. but you, you have a context for understanding what it means to suffer what it means to be yeah, exactly i mean that's you know i love uh heather has she's so great at bringing these um just sort of these okay modern day examples of of what this means it's just it's a brilliantly written book i love it and i'm getting so much out of it the second time i'm going through it but anyway she she talks about the her her own suffering in her own way of like wanting to call a friend in the hope of like you know, being able to like maybe you know move. I think she's talking. Or, yeah, yeah, something like. That. Yeah, moving into a new place. She could make a. You know, she could. She had a big thing that she wanted to talk to the friend, and really all she got from the friend was, "Can you take me to the doctor?" You know, <laughs> and so it's. Are we only there for people because they can take us to the doctor? Uh, that they can that they can do something useful for us, 
or are we there in their joys, their pains, their sorrows? And, you know, I think that's the element of what we, you know, call and join with and be allowed to join with Jesus in that redemptive suffering. And so that's what we meant. I mean, we said in the beginning, we're kind of getting into a sense of real deep spirituality now with Therese and leading off with the, 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 yeah. the, the her father. Well, I, I came out of the evangelical tradition um, early in life. That was how I was raised. And in that tradition, there's a sense of um, a sense that that Jesus will will preserve you from all suffering if you have enough faith. And that's a that's actually for me that was a hard teaching because it turns out um, whether or not I had faith, it turns out I was going to suffer and have suffered like everyone, right? And so um, then is that suffering evidence that I didn't have enough faith or that my walk with Christ is not close enough? Or is it evidence, as you're saying, that he's inviting me into that experience, that very deeply paradoxical experience that as you grow closer to him, you might just end up suffering more, but in that suffering, you're able to identify with your savior. Well, exactly. And, you know, you mentioned in the beginning, Amy, that about being, you know, stripped down in our, in our soul and, so one has to ask, well, is that, is that necessary? So for us, yes, it is necessary. And there's no way for us to be stripped down without that suffering. So it's not just that, it's not just that, oh, it's too bad you suffered, but you know, you can get some good out of it because it stripped you down. It's more like, no, you need to be stripped down and there really is no other way. So the, the, you know, the, the path is suffering. And as Christ said, you, you know, you've got to pick up your cross and follow him. You've got to unite yourself with him, not just in the being healed on the mountainside or something, but uh, but carrying the cross and walking with him to his crucifixion and uniting yourself with him to uh, uh, to him in the crucifixion. But our flesh, our a, flesh recoils against that thought, though, and I think that's why this is a hard teaching, because instinctively, well, you know, self-preservation and all that, we don't want to suffer. Well, and I'm going to go back to a, a, a Heather King quote because I, I, I kind of pulled this out of the document because I thought it was so, so great. She's talking about uh, um, uh, Dorothy Day, the, the so Catholic social yes. worker, Catholic. and uh, that she was uh, very, very devoted to. And so Heather writes and says, but as Day, whom I'd long admired, well knew true poverty is never, ever voluntary. Poverty consists precisely in all the ways you absolutely don't want to be poor. Poverty consists in a long succession of events not going your way. And I thought, now there's a great way of putting putting it that um, that if we lose things that we don't really mind losing, that's not such a big deal. But it's but truly uh, true poverty is when you lose things that you really didn't want to lose. You know, it's, it's kind of like when we go to Lent and we say, you know, like I, I heard a, a priest say, he said, it's a, he said, it's amazing. It's amazing how much people must like chocolate because he said, every, <laughs> everybody I talk to gives up chocolate for Lent. And he said, <laughs> I do, I do, but I really do like, love chocolate. That is hard. <laughs> but he's, he's, but he, he was kind of, he was kind of laughing. He said, you know, he said, I know people. I'm like, you don't even really like chocolate, but you're, you know, yeah. that's not really a sacrifice. Or, or you, you can know. give up, I don't know, cauliflower. <laughs> right. <laughs> like it's not yeah. I could give up broccoli. And <laughs> so actually my penance should be eating broccoli. But, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but, you know, but I think that's, 
and Heather, again, uh, she has that magical way of being able to translate this into the modern person walking in the modern world. And I think she said that, said that beautifully. And I think that's what Therese is entering into and is teaching us because she, you know, she also, um, you know, she also made the, the reference, um, that, uh, now this is Therese talking where Therese says one day in heaven, we will love to talk to each other about our glorious times of trial. Yes, the three years of Papa's martyrdom seem to me to be the most pleasant, the most fruitful of our entire life. I, I'm glad you quoted that because that is perhaps the biggest paradox of all. So that even when we do suffer with and for Christ, that it can actually be glorious, that it can be sweet, I, I guess is a better word. How, well, how do you yeah, I mean, for us, suffering is is a pathway to glory because we are united to Christ and that was his pathway to glory. And so you, the master, the, the, the servant can't be greater than the master, right? I mean, that's what, that's what Jesus said. And that's what is hard. I think for a lot of people to realize is that we, you, you know, there, there's some traditions out there that sort of give you the idea, at least the perception I get anyway, that they view, they view it as, okay, Christ did this and it was awful and horrible. And we love Christ for having suffered and died for us, but it's over now. That was done historically, and now we all get to reap the fruit of it. Joy, peace, happiness. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you did that. We know that was awful, but, but you know, really, that, that <laughs> when you look at the history and you look at the history of the saints and you see that really the, the glory and the peace and joy that came was in their suffering, that you read many of the saints they, their joy was in suffering. And then in the modern world, they say, oh, that just sounds macabre, like a mental illness or right, something like right. that. And it's, it's not that kind of masochism yeah. at, at all. It's that it's the joy that you're united with the person you love, which is Jesus Christ. And to be truly united with Jesus, you've got to be united in his suffering. And it's their joy. It was their joy. No one likes pain, but it's that it's that joy of knowing that I'm living a life in union with you and I'm suffering with you. And that's very difficult in some traditions that say, well, that can't be, he already suffered. It's over. He suffered. He rose from the dead. That's, that's gone. That's, that's over. And now we just, you know, reap the, the fruitful benefits of joy, peace, and happiness. And then, you know, you kind of see it get into some of these other things that you kind of have to wonder how much they make sense that Jesus, you know, can do anything, but then I pray that he'll make the tornado go away, but the tornado doesn't go away. Uh, but he'll comfort me as the tornado rips my house apart. And, and I'm not, I'm not uh, being fl flippant about those. I'm just saying that there's sort of as a, a, there was sort of a logic to all that that raised questions in my mind. Like, how does that all work? And and I know when I got into the Catholic tradition, it made sense to me. Right. It, it didn't, didn't sound, it didn't sound like something I could do and enjoy. <laughs> like it, I, I felt a certain like, whoa, like, you know, this may take grace. Well, <laughs> Guess what? It may take grace to do that. When I read this book, like you, uh, more than 10 years ago, at that time, I had not watched somebody in my family suffer and eventually die. And since then, I, I watched um, my both my grandmother and my father um, suffer through dementia or Alzheimer's and die from it. Um, and then um, you know, three weeks after I lost my father, I also lost another close friend. And so the experience of reading this now is much different for me. 
And, um, and so, and I, I probably, I think I just flew through this chapter the first time, but this time I I really read it thoughtfully and, um, really could, um, could empathize with Therese's experience and, and also see in my own life that looking back, like, let's take my grandmother, um, who, who lived for many years, um, with, with dementia and, um, and that's, that's a real suffering. Anyone who's watched someone go through that really knows that that, that is suffering. When, when you start to lose, you see your loved one losing their personality and their memories. And then, you know, to not even know you one day, like that's a real deep kind of suffering. Yeah. It's, it's harder than, it's harder than your own suffering. Yeah, yes, it is. And yet I, I remember that time with my grandmother as being very sweet, very sweet. We, you know, we sort of lost the capacity for conversation, but when I would go visit her, I'd sit with her in, you know, the little dining room of her facility and just hold her hand yeah. and just exchange love, you know? Well, you know, this was, this was one of the things when I first started reading Therese way, way back after my, my initial conversion to the church, this was one of the things that intrigued me was this whole notion that at least for me, when I read Therese, what really popped out was that she united herself in suffering. She actually found love in suffering. That that was, and that whole thing about Therese and suffering was what really kind of grabbed my attention, and that I didn't understand. And I remember, and not that I even think I understand today, but I remember when I first read her book, uh, not long after I. Uh, joined the church was I remember thinking as I was reading that I I love what she's saying is true I don't understand what she's saying but I know that it's true Mm -hmm. that was the feeling that I had there was a sense inside of me that said I don't I don't really get this because I guess for me and I want to be fair to everyone because the way I perceived things may not have been the way that people were were teaching me uh, before I became a Catholic and, and I was in a, you know, a, raised as a Protestant, but in, in fairness to the Protestants, I was not a very good Protestant <laughs> and I was not exactly the best example. So I don't want to say that these are things that I was taught because they probably taught me things that were, might've been different, but my perception, my perception was that if I'm, if I'm saved, then you know, I don't really need to do anything except, you know, I'm kind of now I'm on the inside and I just need to try to get other people to join me on the inside. And that it seemed to me like, uh, and this will show people how shallow my, my system of, of faith was. Um, and again, I don't think this is the type of theology I was being taught. So I was just, again, I want to be very fair to our Protestant listeners. Uh, but I, I just thought, well, things are supposed to go well. Yeah. Yes. Like I joined the good side. So things should go well and, and, and they wouldn't go well. They wouldn't go well. And I think, well, and then it gets into that whole thing of, well, do you really have faith and how much faith do you have? And so all I'm saying is that when I, when I came into the church, my, my first real introduction to Catholic spirituality was St. Therese, I guess is what, what I'm really saying. Uh, I learned some as I, you know, in the class that I went to, I had read a few books, but I came across St. Therese relatively quickly after my conversion. I would say within, oh my, it would have to be within the first year, uh, within six months or a year, I came across her, her book. So she was formative, the most formative influence 
on me in terms of, of spirituality. And it was this, this mystical notion that she had of, of redemptive suffering. Like, how can you say, like, I get that you're suffering because your father is ill, but you said that those are the most, that that suffering was the most glorious and, and fruitful of your times. And that, there was something that was felt true, like something inherent in the makeup of my personhood thought that sounds true, but I, I don't understand it at all. Well, we, you know, we, we can look back on that family and say that the fruit of it was that I, I think just about all of them have been uh, raised, have been canonized. Yeah. They, yeah. Including, including the, including the parents. Including the parents that we recently and, celebrated their feast day. Well, what, what I did was I started putting it together because as I started reading, that's where the lives of the saints come in very well, because they give you uh, examples of, uh, you know, there's no new revelation that comes uh, out of, you know, revelation, you know, ended with Jesus Christ as we, as the church has always taught. There's not some new revelation, but what we do see in the saints is uh, examples. Yeah. And, and we, we, I think everybody does that, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, you look to other people as examples that you, you go. And that for us, the saints are examples. And so as I began to expand out and look at other uh, saints and very deeply spiritual people in the Catholic tradition, I noticed the same thing. I noticed this same mentality, the same spirituality centered around uh, suffering that as followers of Christ, we're not looking to be the richest people, the most liked people, the most influential people. You know, we're not looking to be the ones who have a friend who can keep us from suffering. That's, I always call that the genie in the bottle. Like Jesus is not a genie in a bottle that I can rub the bottle and make all the pain go away. That, you know, Jesus is truly man, truly God, and he's our friend. He's the person we unite ourselves with. And to do that, look at the, look at his life and look at how it ended. And he said, you know, come follow me. And, And so I don't know that it's ever made a hundred percent sense, but I could start seeing the similarities between the other saints and St. Therese. Well, and then this dovetails into the next chapter, chapter 10, which is October, which is about her manuscript that she wrote the story of a soul in which we do get to read and which, which is how we know of so much of this suffering. It it comes to us through her autobiography. Um, But this, chapter is subtitled on offering up our work and it's written in the sense it's um you know heather king develops this idea of giving our all you know to a project well to to christ first and foremost but to like our vocations and then having that that not having not receiving any sort of affirmation as a result of that or being ignored or belittled or just you know nobody really caring. <laughs> well, I, I, I found that to be very, very, uh, meaningful, uh, for, for me because, you know, I, I, I really can relate a lot to what Heather is talking about. Um, you know, I know in my own life, I feel like I've been trying to say things to people and, and just not feeling that I'm really making any, any progress in doing it and, and feeling more and more insignificant as we go. And, and this is such a beautiful chapter in, in Heather's book 
because I think you're right, Amy, I think it does dovetail from that notion of, of suffering that Therese had, that there's another sort of level to this, which is insignificance as actually an important part of yeah. our spirituality. It's like suffering in obscurity. Like it's like suffering a in obscurity. And, and if anybody, if you're kind of catching this, this is not the message of the world. The message of the world is you must avoid suffering at all costs and you must be famous. And if you can't be a social media phenom, then you should be depressed because you need to have how many, how many likes have you had a video that goes viral? Because if you've had a video that goes viral, you are, you are now important and the world knows who you are. So the, the world has this whole other message. And uh, the message uh, is that you know, Therese went viral after she died. When she was living, there was nothing uh, about her. And in fact, if she were on social media, she would be one of these people that just is is like just uh, boring and hardly ever post anything, right? <laughs> and so she was, um, you know, there's a, there's the the quote at the beginning of the chapter, and this is actually uh, Heather is quoting Sister Anne of the Sacred Heart. So this is Heather quoting Sister Anne, who said after Therese's death, said, until close to her death, uh, Therese continued to be largely uh, unremarkably unremarked by her fellow nuns. Sister Anne of the Sacred Heart reported of her own years at Carmel, quote, there was nothing to say about her. She was very kind and very retiring. There was nothing conspicuous about her. I would never have suspected her sanctity. Basically, they just didn't notice her. She was, she was, yeah, she was just, she was, she's very unnoticed, you know, and there's a, there's a, there's a book that I'm trying to get through. It's really good, but it's, it's a book written, um, that was, uh, that a, a, a priest was asked to write by Therese's sister at the time. So this is someone who knew Therese's sister and knew the family who wrote an autobi, who wrote a biography of the life of St. Therese. And I, I remember in the very front, he said, that he was worried in the beginning about how he was going to do it because he didn't think there was really much to say. <laughs> like, how do I write a biography about, I mean, her she, own biographer thinks there's nothing to yeah, say. She, she, you know, like she grew, he was thinking purely in just sort of, you know, human terms, like, well, she grew up, she, she had a nice home. Uh, she went into Carmel and that's where she's been. And so I'm not really sure where to go with this. You know? and, and then, then he said, you know, obviously as I got into writing, you know, really getting into who Therese was, it just expanded and it became very expansive. And so, uh, but in her life, she was insignificant. And, and again, somewhere else, and I, I'm sorry, sometimes I make these re- without knowing what the reference is. Cause I just have done a lot of reading over the years, but I, somewhere along the line, I read where, you know, when she died there, there weren't really many people at her funeral. I mean, like not many people knew her who, who really knew who she right. was. I remember family. from her childhood, she didn't have a lot of close friends. Yeah. She didn't have a lot of close friends. She had her family and the yeah. people at Carmel, but uh, you know, really it's not, you know, we think that, you know, some people, they die and there's just crowds are teeming in and sitting on the wall trying to get a view. And that wasn't the way Therese was. She was just a, an inconspicuous, ordinary person that uh, passed away from an illness and everybody was sad and they buried her. (laughs) And then people started reading her manuscript and realized, you know, we had a saint in our midst and Heather, Heather, uh, you know, kind of extrapolates out of that into our, into our own lives. And, you know, if you haven't read her book, you really should, because I can't do it justice by talking about it. She has some of Heather has some of the 
I think really uh, most uh, uh, just, I don't know what to call it, but just real language. I mean, it really hits you hard about the reality of life. And she's so honest. She's so authentic when she writes. And yet without really losing that sense of, of, of modesty that you would have. So Heather's great about without, without really revealing more, you know, or what we'd call the TMI, too much information, <laughs> you know, w- without revealing the, the, the too much information, she reveals so much about what's deeply going on. And she writes about her own struggles with that, that, that I can really relate to. She, she was a writer. She talks about that she saw religious writing and spiritual writing as a vocation. She, she left like her uh, career. She left, she left the relative prestige of a job as a lawyer. She gave up all that so she could pursue what she felt her vocational calling was to write. And no one was paying attention. Right. It's like, no one was. (laughs) (laughs) Publisher said, no, no. Yeah. She, and, and so she was struggling with this is my calling, but I'm receiving nothing, no affirmation from it. And I can identify with that because actually I had a similar course because I, I changed my, my life course, uh, in, in a way that's somewhat similar to, to Heather's and in a way, you know, pursued what I felt was truly vocational calling. And yeah, it's, it's hard because that moment where the world says, wow, <laughs> we've, no- <laughs> we've noticed you and we've read what you wrote and man, you know, you are, you are a gift to mankind. You are a gift to mankind. <laughs> you know, I mean, we we're, we're maybe, you know, maybe a little exaggeration, but we're looking for something. We right? somebody, we're looking for something. I, I somebody, <laughs> give me, give me something to work with folks. And, and I can identify uh, though with Heather's, you know, Heather's pain, but the, the beauty thing is, and I, and I think Heather really captures the sense of Therese. Uh, in that, you know, when you read Heather, she writes about, she connects that in a positive way to suffering that she needed to go through and that suffering that was actually, is actually part of her path of sanctity, her path that she obviously would hope would lead to heaven in a Theresian manner is that this had to be the way it was, you know, it, it had to be this path. I, I had to go and do this. And I had to face that failure. Right. And and that that was precisely the the, the path that she She also makes a, a um a good point that sometimes our failures or our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities are exactly what somebody else may need in this right. life on in their own journey. Right. Right. It yeah, it's it's kinda like it's not about us all the right. time. <laughs> like our life, you know, we're our life is nothing but a drama of ourselves. You know, I remember one time, I, one time I could identify, I, it was somewhere in some event and I was with people who were talking about these kind of things. And I remember somebody said, you know, I'm, I'm just so tired of my own drama. You know, like, <laughs> I'm just, I used to, he said, I'm, I'm so bored with my drama. Like I'm just tired of I'm bored with myself. Yeah. I'm bored with myself. My life is so dramatic, but I'm just so bored with that drama. And I think that sometimes we forget that it's, yeah, it's not just, it's not about us, but it's about what we can contribute. And, and to be honest, and you know, Amy, to be honest with you, I, I, you know, I'm happy, somebody like Heather, I'm happy 
with whatever success she finds and everything. But, you know, the, the deep connection I can make with her writing is precisely in what she writes about her, her failures, her pains and, and things are. Yeah. And so those things that she went through are, are powerfully positive to a lot of us. <laughs> right. And I, I want to point out if you haven't read it, um, that what Heather is doing when she talks about some of these failures is it's not a pity party. So she's not going down that road. She's, she's actually saying, you know, this was, this was something that I had to go through and that there's value in it. Um, and a, a one quote from her in this chapter is she's, and she's talking about telling your story. So, um, you know, telling, telling the story of, of your life, of your struggles. And she says, the story can't be quote, I'm a victim. And it also can't be quote, I'm a hero though. In some sense, you're telling of the hero's journey, which, um, just side note, we talked about in a lot in our last um, season. She continues, what makes for an authentic personal story is that the hero is not you. The heroes are the people who put up with or helped you or accompanied you along the way. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, and she does do a, a beautiful job of really giving us what we need and revealing what needs to be revealed to give it. But you're exactly right. It's uh, there's no um, there's no pity party, uh, you know. There's no sort of drunkalog uh, kind of a kind of a thing. So she uses a lot of discretion, but seems to me to have a uh, that sense of artistic skill to know how much to say and how much not to say. That you know, I oftentimes laugh. Either <laughs> go too far one way or not enough another way. So. Yeah, I think that that it's it's tied in it's it's tied in very nicely to Therese's uh, spirituality, and so she she really hones in on this chapter about that littleness, that nothingness, and I in in my view, having read Therese for many years, and Therese being the you know single most formative influence on my spirituality when I started, not that I know anything, but I sense that she's really honed in on on what Therese is really talking about, because. She doesn't talk about, you know, her insignificant, Heather's insignificance, her own insignificance as, you know, uh, sort of, I guess, sort of this, the seed waiting to, to, to grow. There's a little bit of that, but she talks a lot about, in, in, at least as I catch it, is just the absolute necessity that that was the sanctifying grace was in find in seeing my own insignificance you know, to, to want to reach out and be, and be significant and to be faced with nothing but a wall of insignificance, at least as I understand what she's saying, that that in fact was, you know, a moment of grace, uh, to, to participate in that suffering of, of Christ. And, uh, and I think that catches the essence of Therese. It it does. And, it is a sign, I think, that we are advancing in the spiritual life when we can look back on our lives and those experiences, those experiences where we've been ignored or slighted or um, unappreciated and actually find some some value in there and see where where our, our souls did need that experience. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was an, that was another question I'd sort of had, um, you know, relating to this chapter, which had to do with asking listeners have you, and I say, have you, I think it's probably rhetorical. Have you felt insignificant? 
have you gone through? I think most of us probably probably have. And and how you know how does Teresa's story fit in? And and I purposely use the words fit in as opposed to how can she help you or how can you relate? Because I think it's interesting for to think because this is kind of what I did is just how does her? I don't really understand it, but how does it fit in? Like like what do I make of it that I too feel insignificant that my efforts have gone completely unnoticed? And, you know, the hardest part uh, for me, and this is what I sensed in Heather's that I could really connect with is it's Amy, it's one thing to do something that's a little bit peripheral and be ignored to be seen as insignificant. It's another thing to put your entire sense of vocation Mm -hmm. Your, your entire sense of who you are, mm-hmm. like my being I'm putting out there. And it's that being that Which is insignificant. Is rejected. Yeah. Because if I, you know, if I wrote something and it was, uh, I threw it into uh, academia.edu and, and uh, 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 proposed something to a group of PhDs in philosophy and they found it to be insignificant. I would go, well, yeah, it probably is insignificant because I probably was writing a little over my head and, and oh, darn, Amy, they found me to be insignificant. Okay, let's go on and try something else. That's what I mean by there's things we could do. And I'm being a little bit silly, but I mean, the things we could do that would be insignificant. But what, I, what I'm talking about, and I think Heather was talking about is, no, put your whole self out there, like present your your true, authentic vocational being out there and let that be let, let let you understand that the world sees that as insignificant and that's what i have felt as well as that no what i'm hearing is insignificant is is you <laughs> like what you presented everything about you seems to be uh in, in insignificant now we know of course for our listeners we are anything but insignificant in the eyes of God and our, our Lord. So we're talking about the human element. We're talking about that living in the world element. Of course, we're not insignificant, insignificant in the eyes of God. But yes, if you, I, I felt that. Yes. And it's absolutely terrifying. It's a form of joining Christ in that crucifixion. Well, and there, there are no easy answers for that, but I think, um, as we continue to look to the life of St. Therese, we can see where there, that, that experience is actually redeemed um, within God's greater plan for our lives. So, Absolutely. Well, Walter, we've got one more episode to, to wrap this book up. Oh, <laughs> this went by quickly and uh, it's been, a, it's been a joy. It's been a lot of fun and I look forward to doing that. That next one. Well, the uh, then the assignment, the last assignment is to read the last two chapters, November and December, in Heather King's book, Shirt of Flame, a year with St. Joseph of And um, yeah, so we'll we'll be back again next week. And um, I'll go ahead and close with our prayer. And again, these prayers, um, I always take them from uh, one of her chapters at the end of her chapter. So this one, uh, I think, is from chapter 10. Lord... When the world tells me I am nothing, help me to remember that you are not of the world. When everything I do turns to ashes, help me to remember to turn to you. When everywhere I turn is a blank wall, help me to see your face. When I feel like an orphan, help me to remember that you are my father. 
when I feel like a frightened bird in a dead universe, help me to remember that love reigns eternal. When I feel like I'm being stripped down to nothing, help me to know that you are especially near. And with that, thank you, Amy. We'll sign off. All right. Thank you, Amy. We'll see you for our next and last episode. All right. Thanks, Walter. God bless. Bye-bye. We'll sign off for now. Thanks for listening. If you want to discover enchantment and adventure with St. Joan and St. Therese, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us at heroic-hearts.com.